We're working through the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible, you can turn there to chapter 1. Um, we didn't just pick a, a book of the Bible willy-nilly to, uh, to work through as we're starting this church. Um, we, we chose Ephesians very, um, very specifically and for some very specific reasons. Uh, see, what, what we're trying to do here is uh, not start uh, an event that just happens to meet on Sunday mornings. We're not looking to draw a crowd, obviously. If you're looking to draw a crowd, you'd probably do things a little bit different uh, than we have done them. Uh, you wouldn't have a, a screen that keeps going crooked every single week and drives me absolutely batty. Um, we're kind of do stuff on the fly. Where it's, it's like we're building a plane as we're flying it. But uh, we're trying to build something more than an event that gathers on Sunday mornings. We're trying to build a culture. We're trying to build a community of people. Because frankly, if next week 200 people showed up in this room, which would be a pretty incredible growth rate, and we'll look really good, again, I'm messing with my mic, we'll look really good uh, with my interview with my coach, uh, I, I would not be happy unless we, were, we weren't just drawing a crowd but there was 150 people who were gathering together to share their lives deeply based upon the scriptures and built around the person and work of Jesus Christ. To share their lives deeply in community and live life on mission together. If it was just a crowd that was gathering once a week, I would be incredibly bummed, even though the number would look really good whenever I talked to my coach. What we're trying to do is build a community. And so that's why we chose the book of Ephesians, because it's Paul is specifically laying out to the church in Ephesus the DNA of what life with Christ is all about, the DNA of what the church is and where, where it came from and who it's for and what's it supposed to do. It's, it's laid out beautifully. He goes into, he has soaring tones as he starts off the book of Ephesians in chapter one, and he just keeps on rolling, and then he gets super practical in the last half of the book. He starts talking about like the nitty-gritty kind of stuff like, all right, now that you know this about who Jesus is and who God is and what he's done for us, now what does that mean in regards to you being a husband or a wife? What does it mean in regards to you being a, a parent or being a, a child? How do you live everyday life knowing that there's a tax coming against you and life is difficult and a struggle all the time? Which, by the way, I'm going to pull something on you guys next week. I, I'm going to have a crew of people who are going to come in and take those first two rows out after you guys come sit down, and then you'll be on the front row and you won't even know it. <laughs> or I'll just flip it totally on you guys, and I'll set up in the back and have you guys turn around, and that, that's, what we'll, that's what we'll do. Again, in case you weren't here the first couple of weeks, I'm going to drink about a gallon of water up here. I've been on this medicine, and it makes my mouth go dry, and then I start spitting, and my mouth, mouth crusts up, and people look at me all, they're, like, they're not thinking about Ephesians and about Jesus. They're thinking about, what is that on his mouth, and why doesn't he drink, take a drink of water? Was that TMI? Was that too much information? <laughs> Maybe. Okay, well, that's the way we're going to roll here. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be the TMI church because that's how you start living in community with each other. You start being real. You're not putting on a face when you come on Sunday morning. You own your junk. You own your stuff. We you start to hang out with each other, you're not trying to put your best foot forward and put your best face on. You can be real. And the thing that enables Christians to be real with each other is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the truth that my right standing with the Father, my right standing with God, my, my value in life, the thing that we were talking about last week, doesn't come from how smart I am or how much money I have in my bank account or whether I look, I'm really rocking these clothes and these awesome jeans that I got for like 20 bucks. But it, it has to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's done on my behalf and on your behalf. That's what we're trying to build here. We're trying to build that kind of community. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 as Paul's been talking about that. He's, he starts off in verse 3, as I told you guys, almost every week, and he has one sentence from verse 3 all the way to verse 14 where he's just, he gets super excited. He starts talking and he gets more excited than I do about who Jesus is and what he has done and what the Father has done. He uses soaring language as he's describing him. And we've covered a verse 11 through 14 last week, and I'm gonna, we're going to camp on one phrase in verse 11 this week. Because as we're talking about building a community of people, as we're talking about building a new culture, then 
the bedrock of what that is is who God is. So look in verse 11. In him, that's Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Just think about that. In Jesus, you have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I'm going to read that last part again. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What we're talking about today is about, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. And what we're really talking about is the, the godness of God. What makes God God? What sets him apart from you and from me that actually makes him God? Is he just a little bit smarter, a little bit stronger than us? What is it that makes him God? What's the godness of God all about? I, uh, I heard a, a show. Have you guys ever heard the show This American Life on NPR? It's a really great show. But I heard this, uh, an episode of This American Life a couple of months ago, and it was called Kids Logic. And uh, in it, it was about how, and you guys, if you have kids, or maybe you remember back when you were a kid, or you've seen kids, I don't know, maybe you've heard of them, heard of kids, uh, little cute stories that they have, where they, where they take, they, they have a limited understanding of the way things work, but, but they get to a point where logic starts to kick in. And so they make, they come to perfectly logical conclusions, but they're the totally wrong outcome because they, they, don't, they lack perspective. They don't know what's going on. Like, for example, I remember, um, I remember being, I don't know, maybe four or five years old, little, I was in the back seat of the car. This is, this is back when, um, guys, that, uh, the front seat was one seat all the way across. It was like a bench seat. You remember that? Uh, this is like kind of early seatbelt age, at least in South Carolina. We were kind of rolling kind of loose and tight where sometimes mom and dad would actually let you sit in front and actually stand in the front with them on the bench seat. This sounds like, wow, this is, who are your parents? That's crazy. But, but that's the way we rolled back then. And, but I remember like sitting in the back seat and peering over the seat to the front and trying to figure out how does dad make this car move? Because if you think about it, as a kid, you're just sitting in the back. There's a bench seat. You can't see anything that's going on except dad's head and a steering wheel that he's kind of moving like this. And so I'm kind of back there thinking, I'm like, how does, he, how does the car know when he wants to go backwards and whenever he wants to go forward? I could not figure out how does the car know. And so I was thinking, like, maybe he pulls on the steering wheel back and it makes the car go back and he pushes forward or maybe he just has like sort of mind thing and the car knows what's going on or maybe there's something down. I know there's kind of pedals up there. Maybe there's some kind of pedal that he presses and makes it go backwards and forwards. I could not figure out. And, and finally, my conclusion was, it's got to be it. When he pulls back on the steering wheel, it makes us go back. When he pushes forward, it makes him go forward. But then I thought, well, what, what if he accidentally did like a movement, like what will we go? I could not, I, I thought I had it figured out, but there were some holes in the story. You know what I'm talking about? Um, like, uh, there was, a, uh, we used to go, so I grew up in church, and maybe you grew up in church as well, and you had the, the famous going out to eat after church. Anybody experience this? So it was a big deal. We're going out to eat after church, and our family, that was the one time we went out to eat during the week. We're going to go out to eat, and then the other people would come. We'd go out to eat together. And those lunches, because the parents would get together and start talking, would last a long time, particularly to a kid. And so you sit there, and your mind's wandering, because your parents are like, you know, there's only so long you can play with the sugar packets and make a mess with the jello and whatever. We went to this steakhouse called a Quincy Steakhouse. Anybody ever been there? It was like a buffet steakhouse kind of thing. It was like, it was like Ryan's before Ryan's was Ryan's or Golden Corral, that kind, of, that kind of deal. And so we would go, we'd go to the restaurant. Again, I'm giving you TMI. You probably don't care about all this. But we, we would go every week, and we would we'd sit there, and there was this, I'd sit there, and I'm looking around, and there was the, a window right beside our chair. And at the top of the window, there was this circle of like a, some kind of, I don't know, like, like it was like a circle, and it had a wire going into the circle. And I couldn't figure, I spent weeks staring up at that thing, trying to figure out, what is that thing? And I knew that 
restaurants had security systems, and so I got to the point where I figured out that's got to be a part of their security system. But I was like, but what does it do? It's just sitting on the glass. Does it, you break the glass and it moves and that makes it go off? Or no, I bet that's a microphone. And they are listening to our conversations in this room at each table because they want to know if we're plotting to steal from the restaurants. I had it figured out. So I'm looking at them, I'm staring at that microphone for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then, because you have lots and lots of time, I would go to the bathroom, and you're not in a hurry because your parents are an hour and a half, two hours. It felt like 18 hours we were in there. It was almost dark when we'd leave after church. We'd go in there, and there were these things hanging on the wall, which now I know is a air freshener, okay? Now I do understand what they are. But I did not know that they were air fresheners then. And so I would go in there and stare at the air freshener and try to figure out what is that thing on the wall up there. And so I figured that has to be a part of the security system too. And I bet what they're doing is because if bad guys came in this restaurant and they're plotting to steal from the restaurant, this should be where they would come. They would come to the bathroom. And so that has got to be a microphone where they're listening in, which I thought, even as a child, I thought that might be slightly inappropriate, but I'm thinking... There's got to be a microphone in there. They're listening. They're listening to a conversation at the table with that little contraption on the window, and they're listening to my conversation that would happen here in the bathroom in case we're plotting. So I spent weeks and weeks, hours every week, thinking about that thing, thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the more sure I was that that's what was going on. And finally, one Sunday, I decided I wanted to let Quincy's know that I was on to them. They had not tricked this, I won't tell you how old I was, but uh, I'm going to say somewhere in the seven, eight-year-old range, maybe, you know, somewhere in there. And so I walked in the bathroom, nobody was in there. And I did my business, and I washed my hands, and somewhere in that process, I said, I know what you're doing. I'm on to you. I know you're listening to me, and I just want to let you know that I know, and I know that you're listening to me. I figured it out. You haven't outsmarted me, and I'm just like, and I get louder and louder and louder, and I go on and on for a while, and finally, from the last stall in the room, I hear somebody say, hey! <laughs> somebody had listened to me, let Quincy's know. I had figured them out, and he finally just said, that, that's enough, you gotta stop, and I bolted out of that bathroom. You see, kids lack information and perspective. That conclusion was a perfectly logical conclusion. It just didn't have all the facts and information that it needed to draw that conclusion. And that's the way we are with God. See, God has a perspective that you and I do not have, that is above and beyond us. He is what theologians will call other than us meaning that he is, not only is he above us and smarter than us, see the difference between, between me and God and me and my father when I'm trying to, I'm sitting in the back seat trying to figure it out, how he makes the car move, is one day I'm going to be older and smarter and I'm going to be in the position that my dad's in and be able to figure out how it works. But see, God is totally other than me. He is other than you. He's just not smarter or a little more powerful. He is in a different class than you and me. It's sort of like, uh, have you ever, um, I know I use a lot of sports references. Renee pointed that out to me this week, but I'm going to stick with the sports reference because that's sort of my wheelhouse. Um, so if you can pick, so imagine if you, uh, have you ever played a sport uh, and like you were pretty good in the circle that you were playing in. I, I used to play some racquetball. As you can tell, I haven't played in a while. I've got to get back in the gym. But I used to play some racquetball. I loved it. Um, it's, it's a great, great game, super addictive, um, fast moving. It's awesome. And I started playing. It wasn't very good. And then the circle of guys that I played with, I got to the point where I was winning almost all the time against them. And then there was another group of guys in the gym where I would play with them, and they would beat me most of the time, but I was kind of in the ballpark with them, right? Every now and then I could pull something out. If they, hadn't, they, had this, they ate something that didn't sit well with them or whatever, I could, I could pull a win out with them. But one day I got a call for a guy who was visiting town. He'd been given, he'd been given some names of some racquetball players 
uh, at the gym, and he wanted to play while he was in town. The guy was a, he was in the Navy, and he lived in Virginia Beach. And I showed up on the court with this guy, and we started to play what I thought was racquetball, and apparently I had been playing a different sport than he had been playing. What he was playing was racquetball. What I had been playing, I don't know what it was. It, it didn't even look like the same game. We played with the same ball, same racket, same rules, but it was a totally different game. Have you ever played with somebody like that? Ever got on the basketball court or a, a football field or a baseball diamond with somebody who was on a totally different level? And you're like, that they're playing a different sport than I'm playing. Or maybe you're a musician and you're pretty good. You can play a tune, but you, you sit down or you hear or you play beside somebody who is a real musician and you realize they are other than I am. There, I can practice, I can work, I can get a tutor, I can get a coach, I can get incrementally better, but I will never be what this person is. They are other than I am. It would be like, um, the difference between God and us is the difference between LeBron James and me times 100 million, gabillion, zillion. LeBron James is other than me. He is, he is a man. He is strong and large and fast. He is, he is larger than Michael Jordan was, and he is faster than Michael Jordan was. He is amazing. And I will never, no matter how much I practice, no matter how much I work, no matter how much I get coached, I will never be in LeBron James' ballpark. He is other than me. They said that, I remember watching his first basketball game in the NBA, he came straight out of high school, and I remember the, the announcer saying, he's the youngest person on the court, and he's the strongest, biggest man by far already. He's the most dominating physical presence on the court straight out of high school. He is other than me. If you multiply that by 100 million, gazillion, trillion, you start to get an idea of the difference between God and me. See, the God that we worship isn't just a little bit smarter than you and me. He isn't just a little bit more powerful than you and me. He is altogether other than me. And that's what Paul is talking about in this verse of Ephesians 1.11 when he says he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Think about that. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will. God is in absolute control of everything. He is mighty and powerful and all-wise. He is self-sufficient. He has no, he, he didn't come from anything. Think about that. He did not come from anything. He owes his existence to nothing. He is absolutely independent of everything and everybody. He has no needs outside of himself. At no time has he ever felt lonely or empty or down. At no point has he ever longed for something outside of himself that he did not have within himself. Throughout all of eternity, that is God. Now, the fact that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is in control of everything, that he works all things after the counsel of his own will, is a pretty big subject. And it can open up a lot of doors, and it can, it can be a troubling thing. Because some of us in here haven't lived absolutely perfect lives. Some of us have had some really bad things happen to us. Some of us have been involved in tragedy and heartache. And to think that God was somehow in control of that, it can make me, I, I can respond in all kinds of ways, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But I just want us to take a second and not listen to what Randy has to say, well, more than a second, because we're going to look at some scriptures. So I hope you have your Bible ready. I don't have them on the screen on purpose. We're going to take a look at what the Bible says about 
God's sovereignty, who he is, the godness of God. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 90, verse 2. We're going to jump around really fast, as long as, as fast as I can get there, actually, but uh, it might not be super fast. Psalm 90, verse 2. We'll start in one. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He brought everything forth that was brought forth. He formed the earth, and before that, from everlasting to everlasting, he was God. First Chronicles chapter 29. If you don't have your Bible, that's fine. You can just listen to my dulcet voice. First Chronicle 29, verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head Above all, listen to that again. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for everything that is in heaven and the earth is yours. It all belongs to him. He created it and he retains ownership of it all. Nothing falls outside his hands. It is all within his hand. Look at Daniel chapter four. Daniel 4, verse 35. Fascinating set of verses because this is King Nebuchadnezzar who's talking. This is after he had doubted God and we won't go into it, but he, he, he lost his mind. He literally lost his mind. He lived out in the field like a, like a beast, like an animal. And then in verse 34, he says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. His will is never, ever thwarted. He is always working his plan. He is in control of all. He is over all. And nothing is ever, ever skipped out of his mind. Nothing has ever fallen to the wayside. Nothing is ever on the back burner for him. He is always in control of everything at all times, whether the angels in heaven or things on earth. He is in control of it all. And none can stay his hand. Whenever he decides to do something, who's going to stop him? If LeBron decided that he was going to take me to the hole in these brand new baskets that we have up, who is going <laughs> to... What, what am I going to do? I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to move out of the way or he's going to go, he will literally go over me or through me. I will die that day that he decides to do that. At that moment, somebody will come and sweep me up or mop me up with a mop and put me in a bucket because I will be over. Who I cannot stop him when he decides to take it to the hole. If he decides to play horse with me, who can stop him from winning? Not me. I'm guessing not anybody in this room. And God is absolutely, totally other than you and me. Whenever he decides to do something, no amount of your effort or your enemy's effort, anybody you've ever known, the strongest army, the strongest nation in the world, the most powerful, influential man that has ever lived cannot stop his hand. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. We read Psalm 115.3. You can turn to Isaiah 14.27. Psalm 115.3, the psalmist said, Our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. 
Listen to that. That should cause you to worship him this morning. Our God is in heaven, and he does as he pleases. He's under no obligation. Everybody in this room is under some kind of obligation to somebody else. I, I, I own my own business, and I'm still under obligation to my employees because I tell them I will pay them at the end of the week for the work that they have done. And I'm under obligation to my clients to give them the product and service that I have contracted to give them in exchange for money. I might, might be my own boss, but I am not independent. And the most powerful person in the world today, whoever that is, whether that's the President of the United States or somebody in China, somebody in Saudi Arabia who has a hundred gabillion dollars, the richest person, the most influential, the most powerful person, still is under obligation to other people. But God is under no obligation to anyone. He is absolutely and totally independent. Isaiah chapter 14 Verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? He's saying whenever he, exactly what we've been talking about, whoever, whatever he has decided to do, he will do, and nobody can stop him. Look at Job. I know I'm picking the easiest books of the Bible to find. It's okay if you have to flip, because I'm flipping right now. There we go. Job 9, verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 1. I apologize. Back up. Psalm 9, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, so uh, people, have his uh, friends, so-called friends, have been saying, hey, Job, you're a good guy. Why is God doing this to you? And then Job answered and said to them, Truly, I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. So he's saying, if we wanted to match wits with him, you couldn't, you couldn't hang with him. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone, he alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, and I forgot to check this, how to pronounce it before I, Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He like, it's like that ball that that guy that really played racquetball hit with me. It passed by me and I saw it not. It was going fast like I had never seen before. I could not keep up with it. It's, that's the way God is. He passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God is mighty. He is powerful. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. Look at Jeremiah chapter 14. I told you we are going to look at a lot of Scripture today. This is going to be a bedrock truth that we're going to build this community, this new culture around. Verse 22 of Jeremiah 14. Are there, are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you. For you do all these things. God grants rain. He controls nature. That's something with all our might and all our technology, we still cannot control nature. We're better at predicting it than we used to be, but we cannot control it. If it's going to rain, it's going to rain. If a hurricane is going to come, it's going to come, and we cannot stop it. We cannot stop the sun from rising in the morning. We cannot stop the moon from circling around the earth, but God is in control 
of all of that. Amos, Amos, Amos 4, just keep flipping past Joel. Amos 4, verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when they were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. God is in control of nature. Look at Matthew 10, verse 29. Thank you, Randy, for giving us an easy easy chapter to find, right? Matthew 10, verse 29. This is Jesus talking. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? That's not much, right? I mean, that's pretty useless. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Verse 30. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I remember hearing that as a kid thinking, okay, that's really stupid. I don't understand. Like, why would God want to keep track of the numbers on my head, the hairs on my head? The point is, God knows everything at any given time without expelling any energy or effort to do it. There's not one bird that is dying right now in some remote forest that God is not actively a part of. Not one sparrow falls that he's not aware of. Not one drop of rain falls on one spot of the earth that he has not ordained it to be so. He controls all and is above all. Not only is he sovereign in himself or sovereign over nature, but he is sovereign over the nations. Look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 28. For the kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. First Timothy 6. This is exercising a, uh, another value that we're going to have as a church, as a culture that we're building. Is we're going to be a people of the word of God. Frankly, it doesn't matter what I say or what Dale says. Though I listen to Dale more than me. It matters what God has to say. Verse, verse 15. Which he, that's the Father, Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only what? It's a capital S. What's the word? The only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of, lo- of lords. So we don't think about it as Americans, but the sovereign is one who controls. He's sovereign over the nation. That's the king or a dictator. He is sovereign. There's nobody above him, obviously, so we know, except God. He's a sovereign of the land, and Paul says he is the one and only, capital S, sovereign. He is the king of the kings, and he is the Lord of the lords. He governs the affairs of men, who alone, verse 16, has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He alone, he governs the affairs of men. He governs nations. There are people way above you and I in this room that are making big decisions about how our nation or another nation will go. It's turbulent. It can be scary times. But here's what we can know. If you are a believer in Christ today, your Father, your capital F Father, is in control of it all. And over all the nations and over all the lords and over all the presidents, over all the kings, over all the legislators, he rules above them all. And they cannot thwart his will or his plan. He is sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over all things. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to roll you guys through all of these. Proverbs 16. I want this to wash over us today. Proverbs 16, verse 33. And then we're going to be in Isaiah after that. 
1633, the lot, this is one of my favorites, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You know what that means? Here's literally what that means. Right now in Las Vegas, every dice that is rolled, every time the roulette wheel is turned, every card that is handed out and dealt in a game of blackjack, he is in control of all of that. Now, I don't know how to work that out. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means that somebody right now is possibly pulling the lever of a video poker machine and a million dollars is going to roll out of that onto them. I don't know what that means, but I know that he's in control of it. The Bible says every single lot that is cast, its decision is from the Lord. What he's saying is you roll the dice, somebody's turning the wheel, Somebody else programmed the video poker machine and somebody else pulled the lever, but it's God who's in control of every outcome. And if he's in control of every outcome, of every dice that is rolled in your game of Monopoly, if if he's in control of somehow, I don't know how it works out, but who goes to jail and who passes go and collects $200, how much more is he in control of the affairs of your life? in the the things around you that drive you crazy and give you you butterflies in your stomach because you're not sure how it's going to work out because things around you are seemingly out of control. He's in control of that. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord... And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I used to, I was a, uh, I was a cowboy fan growing up. Thankfully, I've been delivered from that. I was a cowboy fan growing up. And uh, again, with the sports, I'm sorry. But uh, Deion Sanders, he played for the Atlanta Falcons and then he played for the hated San Francisco 49ers. Deion Sanders was an incredibly gifted athlete. He was a more incredibly gifted trash talker. He was Deion Sanders' biggest fan. He, He would let the trash talk flow. And I hated it. But what I hated even more was that every single Sunday, he earned the right to trash talk because he was just as good as he said he was. God is all the time in Scripture talking about how awesome he is and how great he is. But unlike Deion Sanders, who, has a very, who had a very big head at the time, he has no big head whenever he's describing. He's just describing the truth and the facts. I'm the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I'm the Lord and there is no other. I form light, and I create darkness. Listen to that. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Look at 1 Samuel 2, 6. We're around the bend of this, guys. 1 Samuel 2, 6. These are, these are not light, weighty matters. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, that's hell, and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. 
He is in control of every single thing. Let's look at the last thing that we're going to talk about how he's in control of this morning. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. God is sovereign in his nature. He's sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over the nations. He is sovereign over all things, including Acts 2, verse 22 through 23. It's Peter in the first, the first Christian sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Look at that. Can you think of any, anything more terrible that has ever been done in the history of the world than killing the Son of God? And yet, it tells us that it was the definite plan of God. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against you, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. To do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. God is in control of everything. He's ruling over it all. Even the good and the bad, for richer or for poorer, for better or worse, he is ruling over all that and he is ruling in that. He is in control. He is sovereign over all all things. He's not only sovereign over, oh, he's also sovereign over our salvation. That's Paul's, one of Paul's big points here in Ephesians 1. We're going to get into verse 2. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, but even that, that faith that you have is what saved you, is what connected you to Christ. That was a gift of God, so that no one would be able to boast God is in control. He is mighty. He rules above all. Now that brings up, as I mentioned, some really touchy subjects. It leaves a lot of loose ends that, frankly, we don't have time today or maybe ever to tie up. I don't understand why God has allowed certain things and has not allowed others. I don't know why some of you have been abused whenever you were helpless as a child and others were not. But, but we have two ways to look at it. One is we can view it the way Scripture is obviously telling us that he is in control and we can, we can find comfort and security in the fact that he is in control or we can bury our heads in the sand and, and try to think that that happened somehow in a way that he wasn't, when he wasn't looking. Because see, there's lots of ways that we can respond to the fact that God is sovereign and is over all, he's working all. He works all things. He works them. He doesn't just watch them happen. He works them according to, that means there's a plan, the counsel of his own will. He is, he's not asking you or me or anybody else. He doesn't have a, a room of advisors. He doesn't have a cabinet in the room that's giving him advice. Whenever he looks for counsel, he talks to himself. And he plans. 
the way. There's, there's lots of different ways that we can respond. One way we can respond is we can respond in anger. We can respond like, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? Or why did you allow that to happen to my mother or to my child? They were helpless. They were the best person I know. Why did they get sick? Why did their husband leave them? Why did, why did this happen? I do not understand. And you can get angry in response to him. You can respond in fear. Because if God is in control of over, over all and and then you could think like, how can I trust a God who is over all things? I mean, there are really terrible, horrible things that happen in life. How can I trust a God like that? I could respond in fear and be afraid of him, be afraid of what's going to happen. Or I could respond in disbelief and just say, I can't believe in a God like that. But frankly, We're not given that option. Because whether you, you and I believe in him or not, or are angry with him, or fearful of him or not, it's still true. The other ways that we could respond to him are we could respond to him in conviction. We could respond to him being convicted because, because I thought I was in control of my own life. Or I thought I had a right to determine what direction my life was going to go. James said, it is foolish for you to even say to somebody whenever you're parting from them, I'm going to, I'm going to go to so-and-so city tomorrow and I'm going to conduct so-and-so business. He says, what you should say is if it's the will of God, I will go to that city tomorrow and I'll conduct so-and-so business. I'm not saying we should be legalistic about prefacing everything we say that according, but it, it has to do with the, the way that we view what we're doing and how we're doing. Are you the determiner? Are you in control of your life or life in general? Or is God in control? Isn't it presumptuous for us to respond to him and think that I can determine what I'm going to do? I'm going to determine what direction I'm going to go. I'm going to determine what I'm going to do today and how I'm going to respond to my wife. That's my call, how I'm going to respond to my wife today. It's my call, how I'm going to respond to my children today. I can be snotty and I can lord it over them. I can be angry. I can, I can provoke them because that's my call or am I under an almighty, sovereign Lord who alone stretched out the expanse of the heavens? I can respond in conviction, understanding that that's not my place, that's his place. And then I can respond in repentance. I can respond in repentance saying, God, you are God and I'm not. You are in control and I'm not. And when things don't go the way that I think they should go, when tragic things happen or tough things happen or things I didn't want to go, the way they, they go away, I did not want them to go. But you are God and I am not, and I repent for thinking that I was smarter than you or you needed my counsel. We can respond in conviction, we can respond in repentance, we can, or we, and we can respond in sweet submission. What would happen in your life how would your life and my life change tomorrow if overnight, while we slept, a flip in our mind flipped? And it wasn't all about you or me anymore. Just think about this for a second. How would your life change tomorrow if overnight a switch flipped in your mind and your heart and your life wasn't all about you anymore. Think of how much less pressure there would be upon you. Think of how much less you would quarrel with your spouse or your friends or your coworkers. Think of how less you would feel pressured to succeed in your career. Think of how much less pressure you would feel about how you're going to put food on the table next week or pay the light bill next month. 
if it wasn't about you anymore and you were the child of a sovereign, almighty creator God who is above all. That's what I mean by saying sweet submission. We tend to think of submission as something of weakness, but it's, it's really recognizing the fact that I really am weak before an almighty God. And he is in control and he is working it all. And if he cares about the sparrows, if as Jesus said, he clothes the grass of the field in a way that Solomon himself could not match, have you guys ever driven in downtown Conway in the spring? It's glorious. It's beautiful. There are dogwoods and azaleas and wisteria. There's colors popping all over the place. He clothed a tiny town, a, a tiny backwater town like Conway, with the beautiful azaleas and dogwoods and oak trees at this time of year. That is, it is like a painting. How much more? Does he care and look out for you? And so instead of striving and us pushing back to him and trying to make our own way, what if tomorrow we lived a life of sweet submission to him, enjoying his daily care and provision in our lives? We can respond in, with conviction. We can respond in repentance. We can respond in sweet submission. And can, we can respond in peace and comfort. We can find comfort in the fact that though this world is a oftentimes terrible, dark place, we can find comfort in the fact, in the fact that he is ultimately in control. And though a lot of evil, terrible things happen, that he will make it all right in the end because he is governing it all the last way we can respond is in worship. Because if it's not about me anymore, then I can respond with my whole life expressing back to him the value of his worth. Because he is a God who is worthy to be worshipped. He's not just a little bit taller or stronger or smarter than me or you. He is absolutely other than me and you. He is not an effeminate, sweet, like, lip. he's not an effeminate God. No, no knock, ladies. He's not a weak God. He's not a God that you and I could beat up. He is mighty and awesome and courageous. He is all-powerful and almighty. It all falls within the strength of his power. He has the right to do as he pleases with whatever or whomever he wishes. He has the ability to do as he pleases with whatever or whomever as he, as he wishes. He has the infinite wisdom to do whatever he wants with whatever or whomever he pleases. That is the God who is the God of all creation. He created the earth and the heavens and you and me, and he governs it all at this very moment by the word of his power. Our God is sovereign. And the only response we can reasonably make if that's true is a response of worship to him.